Uh, the internet service providers are arguing that a law that regulates what they can collect from their subscribers and how they can use that information violates the First Amendment, violates their, their First Amendment rights. And, you know, there too, if you accept the arguments that the internet service providers are, are, are making, it's difficult to see how legislatures are going to be able to protect privacy online. And privacy online, again, is necessary to our enjoyment of the freedoms of speech and association. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 15th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. This week, Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Jamil Jaffer and Ramya Krishnan of the Knight First Amendment Institute. What do facial recognition software and President Trump's erstwhile Twitter habits have in common? They both implicate the First Amendment and hint at how old doctrines struggle to adapt to new technologies. Now is the perfect time to talk to Jamil and Ramya about these things. The Supreme Court just ended a long-running lawsuit by the Knight Institute over whether it violates the First Amendment for the president to block people on Twitter. We also asked Ramya and Jamil about the controversial facial recognition startup Clearview AI, in light of recent reporting showing just how widespread the use of Clearview's technology is by law enforcement. Clearview is now confronting multiple lawsuits on the grounds that the company's practices violate privacy laws, and its defense is that its activities are protected by the First Amendment. These cases don't neatly fit into existing First Amendment categories. So we asked Jamil and Ramya the possible paths the law might take to adjust to the digital age. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 15th. Twitter, facial recognition, and the First Amendment. Jamil and Ramya, thank you so much for joining us today. First, congratulations and an apology. Congratulations on the Supreme Court finally bringing an end last week to your long-running litigation about Trump's Twitter account by declaring the case moot. And the apology is because, Ramya, I remember us meeting for lunch about three and a half years ago, just after I first heard about the case and saying something along the lines of, you know, really glad the Institute is bringing the case, but it seems like a bit of a long shot, doesn't it? To which you gently replied, "Mm, no, we're we're pretty confident. So I now want to publicly eat my huge slice of humble pie and uh, good on you for backing yourself because it was a, a great outcome all round. I'm actually surprised to hear that Ramia was so confident three and a half years ago. Were you not, Jamil? <laughs> I, I was confident. I'm surprised that Ramia was confident. I'm always overconfident in our cases. Well, it's good to have Ramia as a check then. Let's jump right into it then. So maybe if you could explain for our listeners a bit about what the case was about, Jamil. I'm sure that many of them would not be surprised to hear that Trump's Twitter account was the source of litigation, but they might not know exactly what this case was about. So why did you decide to bring this case? Sure. Yeah. Well, so first, thanks for inviting inviting me on. It's good to be here. You guys have a great, you have a great podcast. So why, why do we bring it? So Trump, as everybody knows, was using his Twitter account as a kind of extension of his office. You know, he would use it to uh, make policy announcements, to explain why his policies were what they were. Uh, he used it to harangue and demean other officials. He used it to engage in, you know, his, his particular version of foreign policy. You know, he used it, again, as a kind of extension of his office. And the comment threads associated with the account ended up being a kind of forum in which people 
responded to the president's statements about his official actions and exchanged views with one another about the president's statements. And it increasingly looked to us like that, um, like like a kind of digital public forum, you know, the, a, a digital analog to the kinds of town halls or city council meetings uh, or school board meetings that courts had described as public forums before. And there is a, you know, First Amendment doctrine, uh, public forum doctrine, which holds that when a government official throws open a space for speech by members of the public, the government official can't then exclude people from that space on the basis of viewpoint. And that's a pretty well-established rule in First Amendment jurisprudence. It's probably one of the most well-established rules in First Amendment jurisprudence and has been applied many, many times in those kinds of offline forums I mentioned, but hadn't been applied on social media. Uh, And we saw this case as an opportunity both to push back against the kind of censorship Trump was engaging in. I left out I left out an important fact, which is that Trump was excluding people from his Twitter account or blocking them from his Twitter account uh, because they criticized him or criticized his policies. And we saw this case as an opportunity to push back against Trump's practice of doing those things, but also as a way of establishing the applicability of uh, the public forum doctrine to public officials' social media accounts. And that seemed like an important thing to do because so many public officials now use their social media accounts to communicate with their constituents. And, you know, we want to make sure that the forums that are created when public officials do that aren't artificially purged of dissent. We want to make sure that public officials aren't insulated from the views of their constituents. Uh, And we want to make sure, to the extent we can, that those forums don't become echo chambers. And this litigation we saw as a way of accomplishing some of those things. So I want to dig in a little more to your the notion of the the responses to Trump's tweets as a public forum, because I, I think it's an interesting idea, as you say, but I think it's also useful to go more into the specifics. Obviously, if you say public forum, you know, I think there you can come up with all kinds of sort of grand ideas and democratic theory about people debating, you know, the the direction of the country and what policies should be instituted and all that kind of, you know, Norman Rockwell style public discussion. But if you you can't now look at the responses to Trump's tweets, since as we've as we'll discuss, he's been banned. But if when the count was live, you'd looked at the responses to his tweets, a lot of them were, you know, people posting memes people who disagree with the president posting things like, sir, your presidency is an outrage. A lot of sort of silly jokes, comments that maybe weren't the the most insightful thing in the world. Like, is that really a public forum or is it just sort of people just, you know, sounding off on the internet in kind of the dumb way that people tend to sound off on the internet? I I mean, I'm not going to, defend all the comments in the comment threads to Trump's account. But I I do think it's fair to say that the account served as an important place for public discourse. I mean, I I think that many of the comments were substantive responses to Trump's substantive statements about his policies. And our own clients were blocked for substantive responses 
to Trump's statements about his, you know, his policies. Uh, for example, you know, one of our clients criticized President Trump's immigration policies and was blocked, you know, a few minutes later. And all of our clients have sort of stories like 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 that. And there's a lot that we learned about the Trump administration's policies from President Trump's account. You know, we we learned, you know, who who was being nominated to or appointed to important government posts. Uh, you know, we learned what the administration's posture was with respect to North Korean missile tests. Now, it's true, you know, Trump didn't express himself in the way that FDR might have. And some of the critics didn't express themselves in the way that they might have if they were in a physical, you know, more traditional town hall setting or something like that. But there was real political debate on Trump's Twitter account. Uh, you know, I think it's fair to ask, you know, whether whether political discourse on social media, you know, lives up to or, or is at the level we need it to be if we're going to function as a democracy. But that, that's a, you know, I'm not sure you can blame all that on Twitter or even on the president. I mean, that's a larger, you know, that's a larger question that goes beyond this particular social media account. Yeah, and we definitely want to get back to some of those broader implications and applications. But before we do, I think it's useful to just be, I mean, we've been talking about this already so far, but just to sort of clarify exactly what the space is that you're talking about and that this public forum doctrine applies to. Because I think one of the things that generates a lot of confusion here is that the idea that Twitter itself, a private platform could be a public forum. And, you know, indeed, some of these uh, social media CEOs come out and talk about them, like the modern public square and things like that, and try and invoke this image of this is where public discourse is occurring. But obviously, they're not a public forum in the technical First Amendment sense of the word. And so maybe if you could just talk a little bit about why not and what yeah. space it is that you're talking about. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. So, so public forum is used in a bunch of different ways. You know, we sometimes use it more colloquially and say that the social media platforms are public forums in the sense that this is where people go uh, to participate in public discourse. They set up accounts on social media and they use those accounts to make statements about government policy or just, you know, statements about the world. And they are participating in public discourse. And we therefore say that this is this whole space is a public forum. In our case, we were using, in our lawsuit, we were using that phrase in, as you say, a more technical sense, uh, for a space to be a public forum under the First Amendment, it has to be a government-controlled space that is then thrown open by the government to expressive activity by members of the public. So, you know, the, the quintessential public forum is a public park or a sidewalk where you can, you know, participate in a political demonstration or you can go to the park and spout off your political views and the First Amendment protects you against censorship on the basis of viewpoint in those contexts. And the courts have applied that principle or applied that doctrine to other kinds of spaces as well, not just parks, but also, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like a city council meeting is a space that is a government controlled space, but then opened up to the public for comment. So if there's a microphone, city council invites comment on a proposed new policy, the city council can't say only Dem Democrats can comment and Republicans can't uh, or something like that. 
and you know there are there are other contexts too where the government a government agency for example might open up uh, a space for a certain kind of political activity and the courts might call that a designated public forum because certain kinds of expression are permitted there and sometimes the courts have allowed the government to draw lines and say you know this is a space for a certain kind of expressive activity and not for other kinds of expressive activities but the kind of touchstone or or I'm not sure that's the right metaphor but the 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 rule in all of these uh, context is if it's a public forum, the government can't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. That's really the sort of non-negotiable principle at the bottom of the public forum doctrine. And, you know, we saw the president's social media account, his Twitter account, as uh, reflecting a deliberate decision on the part of the president to open up a digital space for comment by the public. Nobody goes on social media in order to have a kind of one-way conversation. You know, the president already has the ability to issue press releases. Uh, he could have used whitehouse.gov uh, to start his own blog if he wanted to do that. Instead, what he did was use his social media account. And a social media account is distinctive because of interactivity, because it allows for comment by other people. And we pointed to that in arguing to the courts that this account should be conceived of as a uh, as a public forum in the technical sense, in the technical First Amendment sense. But it gets even more confusing, uh, as you know, Evelyn, because some people argue that all of social media is a public forum in the technical sense. That is not the argument we were making in our case. Let's talk a little bit about the the broader applications of the argument that you all made. One instance that attracted some attention was Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who had also blocked a few people and later apologized and unblocked them, which feels like it, it might have also been an option available to President Trump instead of litigating the case all the way to the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, yeah. The Knight Institute's quoted as celebrating her, her decision. On the other hand, it's also true that female politicians are subject to a lot more harassment online and blocking seems like a helpful way to deal with that. So would your argument be that representatives can't block anyone, even say, you know, harassers or trolls? No, that wouldn't that wouldn't be our argument. In many ways, our case was the easiest possible case in, in one way, because it was the president, you know, obviously using the account as an extension of his office. So there was really no uh, serious argument about state action. You know, sometimes uh, a state, a government official has a personal account and an official account uses the official account to announce new policies, uses the personal account to talk about golf. You know, this this was as clear as it could possibly be that the president was using this particular account, which at one point was his personal account, but as clear as it could possibly be that the president was using this account as a kind of tool of governance or an extension of his office. So there was no serious dispute about government power or the state action doctrine. But the other way in which our case was easy is that there was no dispute that the president had blocked our clients on the basis of viewpoint. And, you know, as I said, you know, our, our clients had criticized government policy and found themselves to be blocked from the account on, the, on that basis. Uh, this was not a situation where people, you know, we weren't representing trolls. We weren't representing people who had harassed the president in any, you know, reasonable definition of that 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 word we weren't representing people who had 
had tweeted at him thousands of times or something like that and made themselves a kind of annoyance uh, in that particular way. Uh, but those kinds of activities, I think, could present more difficult questions in the same way that, you know, at a city council meeting, you may accept the general principle that the city council can't kick you out on the basis of viewpoint. But what about somebody who comes in and, you know, is, is carrying a sign, a pornographic sign or something like that, or somebody who uh, is using a megaphone rather than just speaking in a, you know, in a voice at a level that's more appropriate in that particular context? You know, the, the way in which somebody expresses himself or herself can can present uh, challenges to the ability of the government actor to host a conversation that is actually useful and, and is, is doing the kind of work we needed to do in our democracy. And, and I do think that, you know, certain kinds of harassment online do present a much more challenging question than the one that was presented in our, in our case. I will note that AOC blocked people not on the basis of harassment, uh, but on the basis of their criticism of her policies. That's not to say that there weren't people in her account who were harassing her, but those aren't the ones she blocked. Uh, the person who sued her criticized something she said about migrants at the border, and she blocked him as, as, uh, uh, you know, as a result of that, which I think is why she eventually you know, changed her mind uh, and, to her credit, uh, stopped blocking people on the basis of viewpoint. So under that argument that you've just sketched out, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about how it would apply to, say, uh, some of Twitter's newer features that have been rolled out since your litigation started. Namely, you can now choose to limit replies on tweets. So either to say that nobody could reply or only people who follow you could reply, basically cutting off avenues for discussion. Under under the reasoning that you've just laid out, would that be acceptable for a politician to do that to their tweets under the First Amendment? You know, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, there, there's no obligation on government actors to create public forums. Uh, I mean, you could conceive of a First Amendment that did require the government to create public forums in some circumstances, but that's not the First Amendment we have. You know, under current doctrine, the, the government does not have to create public forums. When it does create a public forum, if it throws open the space to everybody, it can't then exclude people, you know, simply because they disagreed with the government's policies or something like that. Uh, but they're not required to throw open the space in the first instance. And there are contexts in which government actors, consistent with the First Amendment, open up spaces more selectively. Uh, so you can imagine like President Trump uh, or President Biden gave an exclusive interview to Fox News. I don't think you could credibly argue, I know you could not credibly argue that by inviting Fox News you know, into the White House for an interview, President Biden had established a public forum and that any other media organization that wanted to come should be uh, allowed to come as well. Uh, or, you know, or it should be seen as a First Amendment violation. There's no, there's, there's no rule that says that the president has to open up a space to everybody if he opens it up only to, you know, to a few people. The, the rule is that if the president or any government actor opens up a space to expression by everybody or effectively everybody, then, 
you can't exclude people on the basis of viewpoint. So I, I don't know this this particular feature that you you mention seems to me an effort by Twitter to give people the ability to open up forums more selectively. And it may be that the relevant analogy there is not to town halls and city council meetings, but to exclusive interviews. Now, I would put an asterisk at the end of that. I think that if your selectivity is driven by viewpoint, uh, like, for example, if you uh, invited everybody except the news organization that, it, that criticized you last week, then you might, you, know, you might get into trouble for that kind of selectivity too. But uh, as a general matter, you, know, you can open up selective spaces for expression without contravening the, the First Amendment. So jumping forward then, as everyone knows, the president got deplatformed and you then argued that this made your case moot and the Supreme Court finally agreed last week after taking it to conference, I think, 11 times. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I lost track after a while, but a lot of times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any idea why it took them so long to agree with you that the president no longer being Donald Trump and Donald Trump no longer being on mm-hmm. Twitter made the case irrelevant? Was it something to do with how compelling the president's arguments were? <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I don't know why it took them so long. I, I think it could have been a few different things. One, one is Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence and it may have taken Justice Thomas a while to write that concurrence or to try to persuade others to join his concurrence, which he you know wasn't able to do. Uh, it may also have been that there was disagreement about how exactly to dispose of the case. I don't. I, I can't imagine that there was disagreement about mootness because this was the this was a very very moot case. You know, not not just because uh, the president had been voted out of office, but you know, as you mentioned, because Twitter had also deplatformed him. So there was no you know there was no President Trump and there was no President Trump's Twitter account too. Uh, So I don't think that's what the disagreement could have been about. Let's talk about that Justice Thomas concurrence, the concurrence heard heard around social media. Um, So where Knight Institute was arguing that Trump's Twitter responses are sort of like a town hall, Thomas is making the argument that Twitter is a public utility, so like a, a telegraph company or maybe a public accommodation like a hotel. He's really taking your argument and running with it. Can you... Talk us through what argument he made and what you think of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure he's taking our argument and running with it. Uh, he, or, or maybe he's he's certainly running a lot in a different direction uh, than we were running. Yeah, again, we, we were arguing that Trump's Twitter account was a public forum. And uh, Justice Thomas points out that, yes, maybe President Trump had some control over who could participate in this narrow slice of Twitter, but most of the control here belongs not to President Trump, but to Twitter. Uh, And that is the story of these social media platforms, uh, immense power over public discourse, extending even to the power to silence a president. And this is something that bothers many people, but obviously bothers Justice Thomas. Most of the concurrence is about not the narrow issue that we had teed up for the court, but rather this larger question of how society should respond to the power that these social media platforms now have over public discourse. And in Justice Thomas's view, common carrier law and public accommodations law 
provide two promising ways forward uh, because they would, among other things, foreclose, or at least in his vision of them, they would foreclose the social media platforms from denying service on the basis of viewpoint or uh, require them to carry everybody, you know, in the same way that AT&T can't deny service to somebody based on their political party or their political viewpoints, you know, they have common carrier obligations. Uh, so too should social media companies be required to, uh, to, to carry everybody. I think that's the, you know, that's the, the basic argument. He's engaging this, this sort of larger argument about regulating the social media companies, which is obviously a very, very important set of questions, but not, not really a set of questions that was you know, teed up by our, by our case. So whatever the the merits of the concurrence standing alone, I think it, it got a lot of attention among lawyers and scholars, in part because there are some tensions with uh, some of Justice Thomas's other jurisprudence. Ramya, I wanted to turn to you here and wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and what you think is, it suggests might be motivating the justice's reasoning. Yeah, definitely. I I think it's interesting thinking about how much of what Thomas is saying here is motivated by the immediate context of this lawsuit, so Trump's deplatforming and the conservative backlash, and how much is motivated by a genuine concern about the concentration of power in these platforms. And in that vein, I think it's worth comparing what Thomas said in this concurrence with another concurrence that he gave in, in the same week in a case greenlighting the FCC's relaxation of limits on media ownership. So in Biden v. Knight, he expresses deep concern about the concentrated control of so much speech in the hands of a few private parties. But in the FCC case, he sides with majority finding that the agency reasonably concluded that its ownership rules were no longer necessary to promote the agency's public interest goals in competition and viewpoint diversity. But he actually also goes a step further, and I think that this is illuminating. He finds that ownership diversity and specifically minority and female ownership isn't even relevant to those goals. So on the one hand, he seems to be concerned with the consolidation of power over speech uh, in a handful of private parties and the threat that that poses uh, to the marketplace of ideas. But on the other hand, he isn't. And so maybe what he's really concerned with is the consolidation of power in the hands of you know, quote unquote, the world capitalist tech companies, uh, rather than the Sinclairs of the world. I think it's also interesting to note what he has to say about the relevance of power to First Amendment analysis. So throughout his opinion, he basically advocates for laws that would substantially constrain the power of the platforms. And at the end of his opinion, he has this really tantalizing statement where he says, you know, the extent to which power matters for the purposes of the First Amendment and the extent to which that power can lawfully be modified, that raises interesting and significant questions. And that actually stopped me in my tracks because it's it's deeply at odds with what he said in uh, campaign finance cases, for example, which is not only that power is irrelevant, but that laws attempting to modify it are antithetical to the First Amendment. Yeah, so I want to explore that just a little bit more, actually, because 
I mean, the concurrence has generally been dismissed by a lot of people as evidence of Justice Thomas's increasingly sort of idiosyncratic and, well, you know, bananas view of the First Amendment. And, and, and you know, as you say, some of it does seem to be motivated by these particular facts. On the other hand, you know, reading the first few pages of that concurrence, there's a lot in there that I think, you know, people on the left should be able to agree with. And people on the left for a long time have been saying we should be taking power into account when we think about free speech and the First Amendment. And as quick as the left was to celebrate Trump's deplatforming and, you know, saying, hey, they're private platforms, they can do whatever they like. I think we, you know, should stop for a second and say that is an awesome exercise of power and we maybe should feel a little bit of discomfort about the idea that there's a few dudes in Silicon Valley who can make that decision on the basis of little more than what they had for breakfast. And so I'm curious for your thoughts, either of you, on the extent to which you agree those are very real concerns and how we square that with, you know, trying not to subscribe to the more crazy parts of what Justice Thomas was saying. I agree with, you know, everything that you said. I, I think that, you know, quite interestingly, Justice Thomas seems to agree on with the left on at least a couple of points here. First, you know, that the platforms have too much power. Um, and secondly, and I think this is really interesting as well, that the First Amendment doesn't actually have a lot to say about this problem. You know, he notes that the First Amendment has some application, for example, when the government attempts to coerce a platform to take action, it couldn't lawfully take itself. So if it attempts to censor ideas, but mainly he suggests the First Amendment needs to get out of the way of legislative efforts. And the particular kind of law he's barking here for is uh, the kind of law that would treat the platforms as common carriers. And I think that he makes a lot of good points there. I actually don't, I don't disagree with him um, on those points. Uh, I guess I, I, the part where I maybe part ways with Justice Thomas is the policy prescription that he lands on. And here again, I think it's motivated a lot by the sort of like immediate context of this lawsuit. He's advocating for laws that would basically prevent the platforms from excluding users from their platforms. And I'm not sure that that's the right sort of solution um, to solve for like the problem that he's identified, which is that these these platforms have too much power. Jamil, I'd love to get your thoughts here too. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, I, I was a little bit surprised at how the concurrence was received because I, I, I think that Justice Thomas is making arguments that, you know, ultimately he, he, ends up in a slightly different place. But some of the arguments he's, he's making are also being made by progressives. And I was surprised to see so many progressives on Twitter you know, dismiss this concurrence out of hand when, you know, when it actually lines up to a kind of surprising extent with the criticisms that some progressive scholars have been making. In fact, we published this paper, the Knight Institute published this paper by Savil Rahman and Zephyr Teachout uh, maybe 18 months ago which I think you could, you know, you could line up next to this concurrence and find two thirds of these two documents would, would kind of overlap. Um, so I was, I was surprised at, at how the concurrence was received. Now that said, I, I think that Rami is right. It's hard to square this, you know, the reasoning that Justice Thomas subscribes to here with the things that he said in previous cases. And I do think that his concurrence here is mo- motivated to a large extent by what I think is a factually indefensible premise that 
the platforms are, you know, discriminating against conservative viewpoints right now. And, you know, that's a talking point that, that is not just Justice Thomas's. I think we saw it in Judge Silberman's concurrence in that defamation suit a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, it's obviously a, it's a, it's a big talking point for, for some conservatives right now. I, I think that, that conservatives would be better served by dropping that talking point and rather than focusing on the fiction that social media companies are discriminating against conservative viewpoints right now, focus on the reality that social media companies have immense influence over public discourse and whatever they're doing right now, we need to worry about how they're going to use that influence over time. Uh, and that talking point is one I think that would be resonant across the political spectrum. So I, I don't know. I think that the concurrence is a useful contribution to this debate. I agree with Rami that where, where it ends up is not very satisfying. I, mean, I, I, I think you could start off with a kind of common carrier framework, or at least at a kind of high level of abstraction, and come up with a set of obligations that would make more sense in this context than a must-carry obligation, which I don't think would actually do a lot of good. There's so much there to dig into, but I actually want to, we want to turn the the subject a little bit and talk about Yarl's work on uh, Clearview AI, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there too. Ramya, one of the reasons we asked you on was because there, there's been a lot of recent news about the company. Uh, if listeners aren't familiar, it's a facial recognition sort of pioneer. It was a blockbuster report in the New York Times about how the technology has been in use by over 3,000 law enforcement agencies. BuzzFeed has since confirmed that reporting about widespread use. Can you just explain what Clearview is and why it isn't just, you know, fantastic that law enforcement can now use this technology to find criminals, for example, you know, in the wake of the Capitol riot or something like that? Sure. So Clearview AI is a facial recognition technology company. And you know, news surfaced, uh, I think last year, that this company has been surreptitiously scraping billions of images from the internet to feed an app that it's created. And so basically what it does is it scrapes these images of people, these uh, people that haven't consented to the collection of their images. And the app basically extracts what's called a face print from these images. And this face print is, is the equivalent of a, a fingerprint. It's the sort of precise facial geometry that sort of maps onto your, your face. And this app has been sold to numerous um, public agencies. I think the BuzzFeed article noted that the app was accessed by employees at over 2,000 agencies. Clearview has since basically promised that it would that it will only sort of sell access to law enforcement agencies. It's obviously incredibly sort of scary business model, I think, to anybody that cares about privacy and also free speech uh, in the digital age. Because I think most people expect that they have an expectation of sort of relative anonymity in public. They might have a Twitter account or a Facebook account, but they don't necessarily believe that these profiles will follow them uh, every time they go to the shops or have a conversation at an outdoor cafe or attend a public rally. And I think Clearview's technology threatens to destroy that expectation. 
because police are using Clearview's app to attempt to match photos that they've obtained from really God knows where, um, whether it's their, from their extensive sort of network of CCTV cameras or police body cameras or even drones and surveillance planes that are hovering over cities uh, with photos in Clearview's database. And what this makes possible, at least in theory, is targeted facial recognition at potentially any place and time. And I think that this has really enormous implications because it turns out that being able to stand sort of unnoticed in the background is actually really important to protest uh, and dissent because uh, without anonymity or relative anonymity, a lot of people would face pretty serious retaliation. Yeah, so it's not that's not the only way that speech interests and the First Amendment comes into play in this case. Um, you know, our podcast is generally about the information environment and, and speech issues, and you work at the Knight First Amendment Institute, and yet here we are talking to you about facial recognition technology. And it feels a little bit, you know, through the looking glass to be talking about facial recognition as, as speech, but maybe that's just a too limited sort of Australian viewpoint of of what speech is, but I think it's at least not intuitive that the First Amendment is relevant here. And yet you two have written that a case about Clearview in Illinois is one of the most consequential First Amendment cases of the digital age. So why is it so important and why is this a First Amendment issue? Sure. So maybe I can just start with, you know, what what's at issue in the lawsuit? Um, so the ACLU has brought this lawsuit arguing that Clearview AI has violated Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act. And that act requires companies to uh, collect or, or obtain an Illinois resident's biometric identifier, and that could be a fingerprint or it could also be a face print relevantly here, um, to obtain the resident's uh, prior written consent. And Pulisic argues that Clearview failed to comply with that requirement when it collected face prints from online images without the knowledge and consent of those pictured. And Clearview AI, represented by noted First Amendment advocate Floyd Abrams, has raised a First Amendment defense uh, in response. It is arguing that BIPA violates the First Amendment as it's applied to Clearview's app. And the reason why this case is incredibly consequential is that it's actually part of a larger trend uh, among tech companies of using the First Amendment to insulate their businesses from privacy regulation. And while these companies attempt to pit privacy against free speech, as we argue in our op-ed, privacy is actually a precondition to free speech. So using the First Amendment to strike these laws down would be disastrous for free speech in the digital age. Tell us a little bit more about the, the general view of the Academy and experts on this issue. Do most of the amicus briefs in the case share your view? Are they evenly divided? Like, what's the most out there argument you've seen made in the briefs? Yeah, so I mean, I think that pretty extraordinary arguments are made by both, you know, Clearview itself, but also some of its amici. I think uh, one amicus brief that stands out is an amicus brief that was filed by two sort of noted First Amendment scholars, Professor Bullock and um, Professor Bambauer. 
So maybe I'll start with what, you know, Clearview argues. So it argues that it's protected by the First Amendment because it's engaged in the creation and dissemination of information. But as we argued in our op-ed, the courts really haven't sort of extended First Amendment protection to every activity that involves information or speech uh, in the colloquial sense. Instead, they've looked to the social meaning of the activity and they've asked, for example, does this belong to a recognized medium of expression or you know, does this inform or sustain public discourse? And I think on first inspection, the answer to those questions seems to us at least to be no. You know, facial recognition technology is hardly an established medium of expression. And I think that, you know, any effect of Clearview's app on public discourse seems purely incidental. Like, yes, you know, police, when they use Clearview's app, will occasionally get leads. Sometimes those leads will result in arrests, and sometimes the media may uh, report on those arrests. But that seems like a pretty long bow to, to draw it seems at least like the primary purpose or character of Clearview's app is functional and unrelated to expression. It essentially helps users locate matches for photos that they've uploaded. And there's no real dialogue between Clearview and its users. Um, the app really just seems to be instrumental. It's a means of bringing about a certain effect. And so to that extent, it doesn't seem, you know, on first glance at least to to implicate First Amendment values. On the sort of like most outrageous argument um, that um, has sort of emerged from the briefs uh, from that case that I've seen, I'd point to sort of an argument that's made in uh, the brief that was filed on behalf of Professors Volok and, and Bambao. They argued that, you know, BIPA is subject to strict scrutiny because it's you know, what sort of termed a content-based restriction. Um, and the reason they argue that it's content-based is that BIPA prohibits the face prints of, of humans, but not of cats. Now, I think that sounds absurd, and, and, and it is absurd, but it actually is a pretty faithful application of one of the Supreme Court's sort of recent free speech precedents, a case known as Reed versus Town of Gilbert which pretty fundamentally changed the landscape of um, sort of First Amendment law by arguing that a law is content-based and subject to strict scrutiny merely because it singles out a certain subject matter. Now, of course, that's something that most regulations do um, sort of of necessity. And so I think the critique made by the dissent in that case is really apt and the critique is basically that, you know, content-based distinctions are ubiquitous in um, government regulation. And it used to be the case that they only attracted strict scrutiny where there was a realistic prospect of the government censoring ideas. You know, for example, where a statute discriminates on the basis of viewpoint or it limits discussion on an entire topic of public debate. Because in those cases, it's fairly clear that what the government is doing is trying to give one side of the public debate the upper hand. But if you're not asking that question, you can end up in this really 
crazy space, I think, where you find a law is content-based because it's uh, it regulates, you know, the capture of, of human faces, but but not cats. And can I just point out what's at stake in these maybe seemingly esoteric debates over whether something is uh, content-based or whether something is protected First Amendment activity? I mean, I think I think that the the reaction that I get from some people when I tell them that we, a First Amendment organization, are arguing that activity like this, you know, like Clearview's facial recognition app, uh, is not protected by the First Amendment, uh, is a kind of, you know, suspicion. Because that, I think people assume that First Amendment advocates should be enthusiastic about attaching the label First Amendment activity to new forms of new forms of activity. The problem with doing doing that, and this is sort of implicit in what Rami was saying, the problem with doing that is that every time you attach the label First Amendment activity to something, you disable legislatures from being able to regulate it. And that's just a function of the First Amendment doctrine we have. The First Amendment doctrine we have is, you know, and this is usually a good thing, is very, very protective. Once something is characterized by the courts as protected by the First Amendment, it essentially means that it's very difficult for legislatures to regulate that activity. And in many, many contexts, that's a great thing. We, you know, we don't want legislatures to be able to regulate most of the things that are usually characterized as First Amendment activity. But if you keep expanding the domain of the First Amendment and you keep characterizing new things as First Amendment activity, one of the things you're doing is disabling legislatures from regulating more and more aspects of, of, of human conduct. And in this particular context, what you're disabling legislatures from doing is passing laws that protect the privacy that is sometimes a precondition for the freedoms of speech and association and inquiry. And this is a, it's a larger issue than Clearview. It's not just Clearview that's making these kinds of arguments. Rami and I are involved in another suit in, in, in Maine involving uh, an internet privacy law that has been challenged by uh, internet service providers. Uh, the internet service providers are arguing that a law that regulates what they can collect from their subscribers and how they can use that information violates the First Amendment, violates their their First Amendment rights. And, you know, there too, if you accept the arguments that the internet service providers are are, are making, it's difficult to see how legislatures are going to be able to protect Privacy online and privacy online again is necessary to uh, our enjoyment of the freedoms of speech and association. So uh, there's kind of, there's a lot at stake in this you know seemingly esoteric debate over the scope of the First Amendment. And similarly with content based, uh, you know, deciding whether something's content based or not. You know, once you decide that something is viewpoint based or content based, it becomes much harder for legislatures to regulate that particular activity. And so that's why we care so much about whether it's, you know, whether it's content based. And, you know, with Clearview in particular, once you accept, if you accept that BIPA, the Illinois law is content based, it's much harder for that law to survive constitutional scrutiny. That I mean, that's why we're, you know, involved in these cases. Yeah, that's useful. It's about more than just justice for cat facial recognition yeah. technology. Um, it's uh, there's there's other issues at stake as well, and I guess I'm wondering why this is a hard case. So you've written that 
principled line drawing in this context is hard and the slopes are very slippery. And I guess I was hoping you could unpack for us a little bit more specifically what the slippery slope is that you're worried about and why it's not possible to just say, well, facial recognition technology is outside the scope of the First Amendment because it, it doesn't look like speech. So I think that, you know, one one question that is a little bit thorny, I think, in this area and that's given us a pause is how might you distinguish between journalists that scrape the web in the service of what they do, which is journalism, and Clearview's activity here, which involves um, scraping the internet in order to populate its database of photos and ultimately run facial recognition uh, technology on them. And I think part of the reason we gravitate to this inquiry about social meaning is so that you can actually sort of address these questions without basically flattening the sort of differences between these activities. Because I think that one sort of mistake that, you know, Clearview and some of the Amici make is by sort of dealing with these arguments sort of categorically. Like there's this stray sentence in a sort of notorious case called Sorel, where the court says that the creation and dissemination of information is protected sort of by the First Amendment. And that seems sort of intuitively appealing because information is obviously an essential input into public discourse and debate. But I think that a case like Clearview shows the sort of dangers of embracing that wholeheartedly. Now, at the same time, you might want a First Amendment that protects the ability of journalists to automatically collect uh, publicly available information from the internet and the service of their journalism, because that is actually um, one of the crucial ways that we as a society are able to um, study and understand the platforms which have been pretty unwilling to share information about how they work sort of themselves. And so I, I think that that's an example of why line drawing is difficult. Now, that's not to say that line drawing is um, impossible. And, you know, we argue that it's sort of absolutely necessary um, if the First Amendment is not going to sort of become untethered from its sort of purposes. But it is sort of difficult. I think the, the underlying theme of the, the topics we've discussed today is, in a way, the sort of collision of law with new technology which fits with the Institute's focus. And it does sort of feel like there's a, a mismatch that the, the laws are sort of scrambling to make sense of this new digital world. I think there's really no better encapsulation of this than an, an anecdote in the New York Times story about Clearview that the lead attorney for Clearview, Floyd Abrams, doesn't have a smartphone. <laughs> you talked about the ways that the First Amendment is sort of being invoked by private corporations and perhaps untethered from its purpose. Could we maybe close with a few thoughts from each of you about how you think the First Amendment is doing and grappling with our new reality and whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about its ability to sort of catch up? Well, you know, I don't think that the First Amendment doctrine that we have inherited you know, is really sort of up to the challenge of the digital age. But that's, you know, not surprising. Most of this law was created in the 1960s and 70s 
you know, the big landmarks of American First Amendment jurisprudence are cases like New York Times versus Sullivan and the Pentagon Papers case and Brandenburg v. Ohio. And these are all 1960s, 1970s cases, uh, which were obviously decided long before anybody was thinking about the Internet or social media or smartphones, let alone, you know, NSA mass surveillance uh, of the kind that goes on now. So uh, it's not a surprise that the law we've got is mismatched with the challenges we're facing. But the First Amendment is kind of reinvented every, you know, every generation. The First Amendment really, you know, was mostly dormant until 100 years ago and then has been reinvented over and over again. And we need to figure out what the First Amendment needs to look like, given the challenges that we're confronting now. And that's, you know, exciting. I'm, I'm optimistic about our collective ability to come up with a new set of rules that is faithful to the values that the First Amendment was supposed to serve, but probably looks a little bit different than the rules that you know, we were using in the 1970s, 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, I'm optimistic about that. And we, you know, one of the things the Knight Institute does, and this is something that distinguishes us, I think, from other litigation advocacy organizations out there. We have a research program too. We're housed at a major research university. We have a research program. We publish scholarly essays that are trying to imagine what a new First Amendment could look like and what kinds of rules we need to serve the values that most of us think the the First Amendment is supposed to be serving. It's funny. I was was probably going to say something a little bit more pessimistic, but Jamil has made me feel more optimistic about the future. I, I think that the reason I am slightly more pessimistic is that the current First Amendment doctrine doesn't seem to be on the greatest of trajectories, um, but that doesn't mean that it can't turn um, the ship around. I think that one of the biggest sort of threats we face right now is the sort of First Amendment being turned into, you know, this general purpose um, deregulatory tool, sort of like enemy of um, public interest regulation, regulation of the platforms in particular. But I don't think it has to be that way. But I think that sort of meeting that challenge requires a sort of recognition that First Amendment analysis shouldn't apply any time, you know, you have sort of speech as that term is sort of colloquially understood is involved. I think that you know, the First Amendment should really only come into play when First Amendment values are at stake. But I think that a First Amendment that recognizes that will actually sort of live up to its goals of, you know, fostering a truly sort of democratic form of sort of self-government. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there with Jamil just making us all a little bit more optimistic. So Ramya and Jamil, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Great to be on. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Zipia Yan. Our audio engineer for this episode was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pachihowell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.